0: Welcome to another episode of GDPR Now. This week, we are going to be talking about governance. And in the studio today, I've got James Leeton gray from the Privacy Practice. Welcome, James. Good morning. And just to remind everybody, oh, well, this uh, GDPR Now is brought to you by This Is DPO, which you can find at thisisdpo.co.uk. My name is Mark Sherwood-Edwards. I'm the host. James, you are the first guest on this show, therefore you have privileged status why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and the privacy practice before we kick into the, the main topic?
1: Right. Well, I was in-house um, at the BBC for over 10 years as um, data protection officer, uh, amongst other things, um, and um, then did a little bit of uh, thinking about this whole thing and the future of privacy inside an online world for, um, for the BBC in its um, blue sky thinking period. And then uh, after that, I set up the privacy practice, um, which I run, uh, and then work in conjunction with other companies in the area, Um, because for me, this is a matter of trying to find um, uh, the right people for the right job, um, because I think the privacy industry is still in its infancy, in many senses, I might have been in it for fifteen years, but we're expanding fast, rightly, because there's a lot of people having to um, come in as the digital economy and indeed the old-fashioned economy expands, um, and the significance of information and personal information becomes more obvious. Um, And so I sort of like meeting and working with lots of different people in lots of different industries and actually ending up having to tell them they may think that their industry is unique, but actually they've got very similar problems to all the other people just down the road. Um, Media and lawyers, who I've worked with a lot, we love to think that we are special and different. We've got the same problems as everybody else.
0: Okay, well, you're saying that in a week uh, in the UK, where the lawyers have uh, <laughs> assumed particular prominence, and if you're a UK watcher, you're able to date this podcast from mm-hmm. uh, from uh, that comment. Okay, d- tell us a bit about go- governance then. In, so we had the GDPR came in May 2018. A lot of people thought, "Well, that was it; that was it's all done now." Mm. Whereas, in fact, other people like you, like me, take the view that's the start of things. Yeah. And clearly, governance, you know, from from the mad rush of, of getting re- GDPR ready, for the, a lot of people weren't quite ready by then. It's still transitioning, no doubt. Um, but you then move to a more steady state yeah. uh, status,
1: which where governance becomes the kind of key, well, one of the key activities. I think that's right. I The, the reason I wanted to talk about governance today is that talking to clients, talking about the problems that they are still having, a lot of it comes back to governance. Now, governance sounds about as interesting as, you know, root canal surgery. Um, it's it's something that people avoid. They th- think it sounds boring and it's not key. For me, actually, it's the reverse. Governance is the foundation upon which all of this uh, compliance and accountability and indeed the economic benefits that um, good data use can bring to an organization, all of that is founded upon governance because essentially everybody needs to know what they're doing, who does what, their roles, their responsibilities, uh, and from that sometimes the resources flow as well. Um, And I think it had had a starting point where somebody was just out, oh, you're going to be the DPO. And it was sort of flung over the, into a, uh, somebody's, um, a corner of somebody's um, uh, job description, if you like. Not always thought through. Um, then GDPR came along and it got more of a focus. Um, and some organizations that hadn't had a DPO suddenly realized they either needed one or they needed to get support um, for the system. And the governance is the thing that underpins all of that. The regulation says that you have to be able to give appropriate resources, organisational and uh, physical, to whoever is running your data protection now, you know, normally the DPO. Now, how do you know what that is unless you've got a governance structure that can actually say who is doing what, when, inside the organisation, which of the functions are involved, and how much time do they have to devote to all of this? So governance underpins all of that. And it's not just about, you know, are there committee meetings being regularly reported and produced?
0: Well, it's the governance is the kind of thinking behind the implementation of the thinking behind it. I presume, And actually, as you said, I thought, well, actually, what about all the other disciplines in a business? HR has a form of governance, even though it may not be fully acknowledged, but everyone knows what they're doing, who's doing what. Finance, similarly. And I guess it's part of the youth of data protection that governance isn't fully surfaced as yet in in some businesses
1: well I think that's right but it's also it's the relationship between data protection and all of those functions because as we discussed um, before you know the, the reality is that GDPR is a piece of legislation that's almost impossible to just say well that's just done in legal or that's just done in the compliance department. It needs information from and to supply information to almost the whole of the business, the operational side, the fulfillment, you know, in online. All of these different areas need to be involved in accountability in the production of information about the compliance, but also in using that data effectively and knowing where the data is, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, I, I think there's a sort of um, a sense that. The organisation of how that is achieved was was sometimes low down the priority list in the GDPR programmes, because while there was a GDPR programme, the implementation programme or the run-up to it, it was being done by that team. And I think the transition from that to a project team and a project lifestyle, if you like, to a business-as-usual team was actually often quite rushed. And I think that's where some of these gaps have arrived. I had a client quite recently say, "We've got problems around um, SARS about retention schedules and about." And they were in a large organisation with multiple um, groups, and they'd produced quite a good policy and they'd done their sort of um, uh, their project work, if you like, quite well. And then they'd sent an email out effectively and said, "Right, here's the policy." Implement it and now, um, you know, and they were surprised that it wasn't sort of quite happening because actually they hadn't said who, you know, they, 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 it's a bit unfair to say they hadn't said who's going to do it. They pointed a rep in each area, but the rep didn't have a proper job description, the rep didn't have enough training, the way in which that person was going to interact to the centre wasn't um, fully understood. They would taken a decision that they weren't caught by the mandatory DPOs. So this was just going to be run out of the compliance area of legal. Um, and so it was all just a bit of a mishmash. The, the essence of what they were doing was fine, but there wasn't a structure to hang it on. And if you like, they'd got all of the body parts, and all of the body parts were in quite good nick, but they hadn't got the skeleton to fix it round. And it seems to me that governance often is the thing that's the least focused upon. Where I have worked with clients, I've tried to persuade them to get a target operating model. Now, that sounds all very consultant speak and all the rest of it. But all it really does is say, who is involved in this? What are their responsibilities? And what responsibilities from other people can they rely upon? The exact role, so they know precisely what they're doing in which bits of the business, and then once you've got that in place, and you can look at how much work's involved, you can say, and, and now the resources has to flow and follow that. So it sort of actually forces an organisation to think about the reality of how this is going to play out. Now you can say that, and indeed the same process can apply in almost any other area of business. But I think sometimes. Because compliance is often seen as quite a remote um, thing, it's, it's illegal, it's in the compliance department, it's not seen as something that's distributed throughout the business. We forget that with this, we need that distribution, and that distribution has to be formalized, and that's where we get back to government again.
0: Okay, I, I, I take the point. And then just picking up back on that particular client, who is obviously reasons nameless, what, did you manage to talk to them, persuade them to do something different to make it more workable? Or, and which I'm now kind of hedging towards is okay, I understand, but and I know if I say, what's the ideal target operating model? You'd say, well, it depends inevitably because it will do depend on the size of business, whether it's the business, whatever size is actually one business, or whether it's five businesses cobbled together. Mm. Um, but if someone's looking around for, well, I don't necessarily re- need to replicate someone else's target operating model, but I'd like to say at least what it looks like so I know I've got some kind of yardstick to base it off.
1: How how would you help them out with that? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. There isn't The the reason why this is complex is that just as data protection applies to thousands of industries and different sizes of companies, so does the potential for a target operating model. So, uh, yes, there isn't a single model fits all. But what you can say is what is it attempting to do and what it's attempting to do is define who are the people involved so you're listing you know are you going to have do you need reps in every area every business every part of the business you know what level of granularity do you need in terms of support across the business um uh, the uh the sort of the you can create a racy model um they're they're sort of responsible accountable consulted and informed which again sounds very consultancy but it makes sure that everybody understands who they should be talking to and when so you've now got that racy if you like across the top Uh, You've got the people who you're going to be involved in, whether it's be IT or finance or um, business continuity, who are going to be involved in which of these processes. And that, even the creation of that grid, even if you never took it beyond that, um, you can write roles and responsibilities. You can have a pretty fair idea of how much time each of those people is going to suddenly now find themselves involved in this process. Uh, and that can give you some indication of, of of the resources that they're likely to need, the amount of time at the very least they're likely to need. So there are some starting points. Now then you can take it down to the next level, writing job descriptions for the key people inside that, writing a job description for those reps, you know so that they know when they should be dealing with it and they can say, well, I need some training to get up to that speed to be able to deal with that. But I know that I pass it up to the next layer up for this kind of thing. So you're 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 making it clear because part of, I think, some of the problem is that some DPOs almost feel they have to do the lot and they're spinning so many plates that they're run ragged and they may well have another day job at the same time, you know. Um, what this does is actually ensure that at least an initial conversation has been had about what support is needed, where, and how they can get it. And I think that uh, sort of comes it comes back to the centre can know that they have told people and the people can't say, oh, I didn't realise I was meant to be doing that. And the people in the business know the limits of their responsibilities and where they can get support. So it, it is a sort of two-way benefit.
0: Understood. So I'm thinking about this. So you're starting off with what do you want to achieve? What you want to achieve is really good data protection, whatever that means. Okay, That's got to be the top level, yeah. but, and that's an easy statement to make. Then you kind of uh, race it or whatever it down, and all race and all those are just tools to help you think about things. And then, and then you can identify all, all the people that need to be involved, what they need to do. So you've got the kind of body parts. You've now got a skeleton. You've hung them off. From. And then the, the missing bit is the bit of the blood that needs to circulate. If I can carry on the physical metaphor, yeah, yeah. Um, because that needs needs a willingness and a belief that the whole that the whole exercise is worth accomplishing.
1: Well, it's the I would say that to use your analogy, um, or to continue as you say the analogy. Information is going to be the lifeblood of it of, of these systems, you know, the information flowing from the business up to the compliance team and background and so on. And yes, they've got to believe that it's necessary. And then you're back into senior management buy-in. And I think there is an element where that was problematic for a while. Um I think there was a lot of, well, hang on, we've done GDPR. That was last year's thing, you know. Um I think um uh, God bless their cotton Suts the ICO and the Cnil fines uh, in the uh, dozens if not hundreds of millions has certainly brought a little bit of focus back um, I think some of the other rulings are um, uh, equally important I mean some of the rulings from the Cnil around the ad tech industry are going to have profound implications potentially and so it isn't just fines as we as we know it's it, you know the, the the ability to say, well, you can't use that data anymore could be, frankly, far more devastating to some companies. That's than happened in the world.
0: 67 million records, yep. disallowed.
1: Right. Um, you know, and so I, I, I think that people are beginning to realise, oh, this is actually serious. Um, this, this might actually have some other ramifications. And I think the next step is people coming along saying, well, these systems we put in place aren't quite working. Um, why aren't they working? And governments may be the answer in some some instances. But frequently, it is also going to be that senior management buy And it's going to be somebody at the top saying this really is important. And I think this is where us uh, uh, as an industry, we as an industry, have to start picking up some of the slack ourselves. Because I think there is a danger that we only talk about personal data in terms of protecting it, in terms of fundamental rights, in terms of the compliance side. Whereas actually, I think we also have responsibility to say, but once we've got all that done right, we're going to be able to use this so much more effectively. We're going to have databases of people who do want to actually hear from us. We're going to have to be able to sort of persuade people that we are trustworthy for their data. Once they have believed that, they're more likely to give us more, to give us Better access.
0: There is so for the business point of view. There's a cost strike downside. That's a compliance side, and then there's an upside where you can actually you're better off. Than able to, you get a competitive advantage.
1: Data quality, trust in the brand, and and good data analytics and the quality of the data means that actually when you then are starting to do data analytics. You're in a better position to actually really start making money out of it, you know, or doing your job as a public body that much more effectively. It, it
0: make an it interesting, I had a discussion the other week in a different kind of forum with uh, a company which I mentioned now, Credit Kudos, where if you know the credit uh, agency, the in the old days you'd get, uh, well, if you borrow some money or enter something expensive, you get a credit check. And you probably wouldn't know it was happening, but it happens in the background. And the three main providers, uh, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And their da- their databases are built up of lots of ad hoc interactions, may be accurate, may, may not be accurate. And this company, Credit Kudos, has a different way of doing that. It uses the open banking legislation, and you give them permission, they can go in and, and look at your bank account for last, or your credit card account for last two or three years, and form a credit s- assessment based on that hard data. And the point that the CEO was making was, he can't do it without consent, and it's a value of consented data. It's consented data is much more valuable because it's kind of by definition accurate than, than unconsented or not <clears throat> fully consented data is picked up in an ad hoc way. Mm-hmm. To your to your point
1: writ large, I, I think there are going to be business models that build up, um, and a good example of one where where the the more the individual gives the Um, company, the organization, the permission um, to start cross-referencing about them effectively. We are multifaceted individuals in in an online world, and the um, large tech players are behind the scenes trying to grab as much of this data as they can. But sensible people either sort of don't want to give it all to one organization or they spread it around or they disguise themselves, they have multiple personas because there's a sense, well, it's, it's an intrusion. It's my, and we're back into this sense of what is private. And that will be individuals will take very different views as to what's important to them. But in terms of how, as a an industry, we then turn around them and persuade them to allow that cross-referencing in a more formalized way so that the data is accurate rather than sort of snippets picked up along the way, that's going to only come through trust. And trust we're back into um, has to actually be earned. You can't sort of, as of next week, we're going to be trustworthy. You know, it it doesn't work like that. You have to build up. And those relationships and those companies who can build relationships over time, I think, will become more successful in this space. And that will lead to increased emphasis on privacy on trust and yet increased emphasis on the use of that data to the advantage of the company or the organization and the individual.
0: So if I were to summarize that as a uh, point for that, if you're a DPO or a chief privacy officer, it's what's the ROI of what you're doing? Yeah. Previous analysis was how much it's going to cost now is what, what, what what money would it bring in? What margin
1: would it bring in? You you, you sort of move from the, um, here's here's the compliance cost, here's the potential fine, through into what would happen to the business if we couldn't have this data, uh, and frequently the, the answer is the business folds, through to what would happen to the business if we, not only do we have access to it, but we can clean it, we can be Sure, that this data is more accurate, the data quality is increased, and we're given more of that high accuracy data.
0: How much of that discussion do you think is presently happening? We'll take the UK as an example in the UK at the moment.
1: I think there are I think there are fewer people having the conversation than I would wish, but they are beginning to happen. I think some of the interesting, it's it's probably some of the biggest players. Uh, in the tech world, who are realizing that actually they can hear the rumblings of individuals beginning to get concerned about this. They're not seeing mass flights. You know, Facebook isn't seeing, it. you know, it had a, a minor rebellion and a few million people left. Well, I mean, that means nothing to them. But I do think. It's interesting that uh, when you look even to the United States, you know, um, everyone or many people are sort of quite critical of the US as a sort of wild west of data. Even there, some of the biggest players are turning around saying, actually, we probably need federal law. Now, they probably don't want something exactly like GDPR, they probably want something a little bit more um, free and easy, but they're recognizing that the consumer pressure is building for some kind of control. So I think at one level, at the very top level, you've got um, people beginning to think, right, what will this look like if we suddenly didn't have free access to everything? And then you've also got tech startups who are coming at it from the reverse perspective. And they're saying, well, at the moment, it's a free fall. The second you go online, all the exhaust data you're leaving behind is hoovered up, etc., etc. How can we help people actually... Um, control their data in a more positive way. So you've got, you've got the top and the bottom. I think the majority of organisations in the middle who are just sort of have an online presence, do some sales, mainly bricks and mortar or whatever, or their relationship is the local council is, has got its website but primarily it's still help desks, etc. I think those organisations aren't yet Uh, in a position to really be able to sort of do the kind of forward thinking that says oh yeah we're now going to sort of um, make a step forward and change the relationship with uh, our data subjects. Now I'd love if people think I'm wrong and they've got examples where that is happening I'd love to hear from you Um, but my instinct is that this is going to build but it will build either because of fear from the large players that their free-for-all playground is going to be closed down or from the insurgents who are coming in selling to the tech savvy people saying you don't want your data being used like this come and use our product um uh, to keep yourself safe
0: no okay i understand that on an allied point then the so we're talking about governance and of course you can't really talk about governance without talking about dpos okay and my tpo is a word that's used in lots of different senses right there's the pure gdpr sense of dpo uh, which very few organizations certainly very few organizations in the private sector need um, and that dpo is a rather it's a strange beast in lots of different ways but whose whose main characteristics are uh independence uh from everybody just about, doesn't take instructions, if a report provides information to the board, doesn't take orders from the board or anybody else, uh, has to avoid conflict and so on. Um, and you've got people who've got DPO to mean effectively chief privacy officer. And how have you seen, and I and I have some, uh, well, how have you seen that kind of DPO role involve, evolving over the last 18 months and the clients you've been working with?
1: Um. Well, the, 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 probably the ones that I have seen most of um, tend to be, if you like, those who are already sort of quite savvy because um, they've either already got a DPO um, or, and they've got a large program to implement and support or they have they've had the foresight to, to sort of grab one of the people who has been in the industry for a while and therefore um, uh, knows uh, a little bit about the background. But we are seeing a large number of people arriving. We're seeing more at sort of conferences and meetings where I'm talking people who have only just started and they're beginning their privacy journey. And I, th- I think it's really exciting. They're frequently sort of having to do it as on top of the day job. Some of them are resenting that um, and are coming along more because they know they have to learn a bit rather than because they're excited by it. Others are seeing this as an exciting new part of their role so I mean you know both I understand uh, I would encourage everyone to see the, the enthusiastic side because I still am um, mm. 15 16 years in I still think this is um, this is an exciting area but but what you're getting at yes the the sort of how are they evolving I think people um, uh, certainly the ones I'm talking to are Occasionally getting frustrated by what we were talking about earlier, the, well, we've already done GDPR, why are you still banging on about it? We did that, we signed that off last May. Um, And trying to get the business to understand that actually it's that was the starting line, not the finish line, etc. I think also there's there's an element of sometimes being slightly overawed by it, that there are so many aspects to this when you start digging in, um, that actually they they feel slightly that they're running to stand still, um, that they're not moving the business forward in this way. And some of the things we were talking about, um, you know, data usage and data quality, are almost sort of like pipe dreams for them because they're so worried about actually getting the systems in place and just keeping it running. Um, I understand that, and and I do have a, a great deal of sympathy, but I think we need to sort of... Um, Encourage people to think, firstly, there will be a bedding in, period. The guidance, which we've been promised on a number of of issues, is now slowly coming out of the ICO, the other supervisory authorities, out of the EDPB. So we're beginning to get clearer what's happening. We're beginning to get some court judgments, which will... um, help, or um, well, certainly some some rulings, some of the, uh, we discussed the Keneal rulings, um, the ICO rulings are coming out. So we're beginning to see the lie of the land where the, the pinch points, if you like, are. Whether that um, sorts out the DPOs problems, probably not. I mean, I think there are increasingly services coming along to support DPOs, and I think that probably was a gap. In the market, when we we were used to sort of very large organisations having DPOs because they knew about the DPA and huge numbers of organisations not really doing much about it at all, um, occasionally going to a panel firm lawyer and saying what should I be doing on this, but it wasn't part of the regular discourse inside some um, some of those smaller companies and medium-sized companies. I think that's changing, um, and with that, the pressure to find systems to support those part-time DPAs is building and we're seeing offerings beginning to come along. Um, Not all of them, um, you know, uh, Rolls Royces, but not everybody needs a Rolls Royce. You know, sometimes a bit of a helping hand getting onto your bike is enough to get you moving. Um, So it seems to me that that's, that's probably the biggest change we've seen this year. That we're beginning to see people offering lower levels of support to people who don't want a major uh, all singing, all dancing GDPR compliance or a massive piece of software launched on you know, 50 servers at once across the globe. But just a little bit of help and somebody to reach out and pick up the phone and talk to and say, this e-privacy thing you know where where what should, should i be worried about this where do i fit in the ecosystem what what's going to happen next
0: no that's well that's interesting There, i think i suspect nowadays people are more confused by the the huge number of uh at least on the software on the techie side techie offerings than they are by mm-hmm. uh by anything else and um, one thing i was wondering about is that this you know, I, I, and this is part of my, so listeners, this is one of my bees in my bonnet. So take it a pinch of salt. Most people don't need a GDPR-style DPO, right? There's only the public sector and the two other categories, okay, which I won't bother to repeat now. Um, uh, there's a statement from the EDPB saying that every DPO has got to be a GDPR-style GDPO. Personally, my view, I would ignore that. That's That's their wishful thinking. It's not in the GDPR. It's not the DPA 18 if you in UK, so it's just wishful thinking from the regulator or pseudo regulator. Um, but, and those who then, so those who then uh, become a DPO and try to be a DPO in the GDPR sense, which they have no obligation to, but, and therefore they have to be independent, I find that that's slightly can put them in a very awkward position. Yeah. Let, let, and here's, here's a few examples. One, if you're in a small company and I'm the CEO, I want somebody who's going to do what I tell them. Right? And if you're the only one or two people in privacy and you're running a GDPR-style DPO and you're independent, you don't take instructions, right? That's part of the role. Secondly, the other one is where you're both the kind of you're effectively the head of privacy, are you running the privacy function and you're also saying, well I'm I DPO as well when you're supposed to independent of the privacy function, strangely, because implicit in the GDPR, as you move from, you take the large-scale example, you move from being uh, a business that's not large-scale, you still have a GDPR-compliant data protection regime, you suddenly become uh, large-scale, you now need a, and you're profiling and so on, you now need a DPA on top top of that. I don't see that, that that same person then switches role, I think it's an additional role on top, that's why I, I perceive it.
1: I, I think I, yeah. I, I think that's a
0: theor- I think it that's a theory, right? Yeah. And I think there's a gap between where we are now or for any company, where they are now, and where they want to be. If you're British Airways or you're Astrazeneca, you can go full monty straight 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 away clearly. But if you if you're not, then you've got to kind of piecemeal the way through.
1: I think the if you don't think you do fit into the mandatory, then I think people. Deciding to appoint a data protection officer and saying yes, we're going to have one, even though we don't have to have one, immediately have to understand that all of the roles and res- uh, all of the roles and responsibilities outlined in GDPR then come into play, and they can't later on say, well, we didn't need one, therefore surely we shouldn't have to follow these rules. I think there is guidance now from the regulators, basically saying if you appoint a DPO in terms of the GDPR, you are then caught now. The difference is clearly that even if you don't appoint a DPO, you still have to have the compliance process in place. And you probably have to have somebody who holds the ring on all of that. We're back to governance. You know, you've got to have somebody who has the responsibility of making sure that the report is produced to go to the board that actually says, here is our accountability documentation to show that we are compliant, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, the 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 sort of the... The nature of the relationship with what traditionally has been called a CPO and you know, provides strategic direction looking at things like data quality, looking at data usage across the organisation, um, but from a business related perspective. Whereas, as you say, the DPO actually has responsibilities to the data subjects, not just whether that be staff or um, customers or clients, not just responsibilities to the business. So yes, there is a sort of, there is a tension there. I don't think there has to be a conflict. And I have encountered people who, uh, are in a combined role, that they are still basically both CPO and DPO. I think it takes an element of, um, support from management, confidence from the individual and knowledge of the industry and of their, their patch for that individual to be able to achieve that. But I do think, I mean, you know, even if that isn't a conflict, some of the other obvious positions to put um, a DPO may also end up being in conflict. You know, um, somebody who's a lawyer for the organisation as the DPO, well, actually, they've got to provide the advice to the organisation, and yet they've got to be independent on the decisions in this patch. Very difficult to do. The traditional one, which has been seen Number of times information security. Oh well, IS that's all the same kind of thing. Security and data protection. That's all one. We'll put it all in there. Well, again, IS might have a very different set of priorities to to data protection. The, you know, the old adage you can have you can have security without protection, data protection. You can't have data protection without security. Security is the bedrock of it, but it's not necessarily exactly the same thing you know and there will be potentially conflicts there so i I do think it will be down to the nature the size the culture the sector etc etc and all of those variables but um uh, i think the as a industry we will probably see more people appointing external dpos because of this potential conflict and i think that's one of the reasons why i think it works um you know with our continental uh, cousins so well you look at germany even some extremely large companies have external DPOs so that they can get that independence of advice. It's hands-free. They know that they can't be accused of trying to influence the law firm that's providing that DPO service or whatever. And at the same time, they can then be looking internally at the strategic use of that data and seeing it separately. In the UK, we've got a very immature market in terms of external DPO. And it seems to me that that will probably begin to change over the next few years, at least partially because of the conflict or the pressure that you've just outlined.
0: Well, I think the best analogy is that of the CFO, Chief, Chief Financial Officer. Now, who performs the audit, which is kind of a DPO kind of function, it was certainly not the CFO in the company. That person, he or she does not audit his own company or mm. her own company for all the obvious reasons. Uh, has been external auditor, and actually all the problems in the past have arisen because external auditors were not independent enough, were take, were getting other revenues and therefore too easily influenced, and Enron being the most classic example. Okay, that well, I understood that's kind of an evolving scene. We'll see, and people have to kind of work it out a bit as they go along, and I'll probably be not too pure as they go along because actually, like, otherwise, it's not workable. Um, you mentioned priv- privacy and there's this, and the different, sorry, you mentioned security and the difference between security and data protection. And there seems to be the most, um, I remember, I mean, GDPR was was all the rage, let me put it out in, in inverted commas for those who can't see me, um, uh, in 2018. And now it seems to be PrivSec and there's some an equivalence between privacy, between security and privacy, whereas
1: actually I think they are two distinct things. They are. I mean, um, you clearly have interconnections. They're clearly incredibly important. They work together. Um, I always used to say that, you know, during the breach, uh, if it's an ongoing breach, um, you know, InfoSec, you're in charge. Once we get to the wash up afterwards, apart from the do we need a new back black box stuff, what happened What went wrong? Where is it? What's the data? What's the loss, etc.? That's when the privacy team take over. And yet, I also think that that's the point where during that you need business continuity to be, you know, they've got all of the systems in place ready to run crises. Why reinvent the wheel? Um, And so, When I was in house, I I made sure and and sort of pushed for an integration between IS business continuity, um, chief operating officer's uh, office, and uh, and data protection. You know, and I think there's there's a sort of. An understandable feeling that, well, you don't want to sort of give the ball away, it's it's yours, you know, hang on, these people don't understand privacy. But actually, you need to play as a team in those kind of circumstances. And I think that's the analogy that I would carry on working with, you know, information security and data protection when they work well work extremely closely together, but they know which bits are theirs and theirs alone and which bits you hand over. But the point being you do hand it over. It's, you know, it's the baton passing. It's, it's making sure that actually those handovers are clean, understood and rehearsed. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when you come to a crisis, it's an automatic thing. Um, rather than sort of oh hang on I know we've got somebody in IS in Manchester but I don't know what their name is let's go and try and find them.
0: Well I think there's two points there and I think we'll be run out of time so I have to stop shortly. One is the rehearsed there was a I'm just trying to remember who it was there was I think it was a Bank of Scotland and one of the banks data breaches which wasn't investigated by the ICA, it was investigated by the FCA actually as it as it can do and it, the point it made was. You had all these uh, procedures in place. You never, never rehearsed them. Mm-hmm. The emergency comes along. Of course, they fall apart, in- inevitably. Um- and therefore, the whole kind of rehearsal, even to the extent of wargaming, in my view, is... Big- absolutely essential. It's absolutely, absolutely
1: essential. essential. I, apart from anything else, it's also very amusing um, yeah. as a DPO. If it, all the DPO's listening, try and make sure you, you get the chance to do this, because you suddenly discover those people who say, oh, yes, I know exactly what would happen. I know. Um, no, I know whose responsibility it is. When they get into the war game, suddenly, oh, no, I, I don't think I should be doing that. No, I think it's yours. And watching people throw hot potatoes around hypothetical rooms is really quite... Amusing because it is very stressful in these circumstances. Unless you've rehearsed it, um, you know, we can all point at Talk Talk and think, oh, well, we would never have done it like that. Well, wouldn't we? You know, until you've actually gone through this and rehearsed it, you never know, and neither do all of the people you're going to be supporting. The closer you can get to a real circumstance in, and put them in real time, you know, even for half a morning, you know, two or three hours, can change their perception of how important this is.
0: Okay, and so if you want to follow up on that, drop me or James a line, and we'll we'll point you in the right right direction. And then on that on that note, I just uh, I was going to go make another point, but I'll digress briefly. I had a conversation with some IBM security consultants about a year ago, and IBM be IBM has gotten these big, huge trucks they can drive around, a bit like the ones that carry IBM things and fire them off whenever. Uh, And it's full of screens in there, and what they do is they put, and you obviously got a pretty big company for this to work, you put the senior management in there, you drive them around, and you throw crises at them and see how they react. Mm. And what the IBM, as I was talking to say, it's really noticeable. Nowadays, senior management in large companies are used to take take decisions on back of spreadsheets, i.e. lots of data. As soon as they don't have any, enough data, they can't take a decision. Yeah, and you know, I think that's quite an interesting uh, point. And the other reason, of course, the DPO needs to uh, understand the uh, the, the privacy, the security side of things, is he or she needs to, be able to challenge whoever's running security in the business, saying, "Actually, what you're doing here, you're not spending enough money." On, on this. Now, the other person may not agree, but oh, that challenge is important. This, you know, If you're a DPO, you could say, this bit's too important, we need to double the budget, whatever it is, unless you know enough on that, you're a bit stuck.
1: Well, and, and you're back into, yes, that new area that's getting investment, it's very important, but this old heritage database stuck on this server actually has got our data crown jewels. And so the fact that we've got all this kit over here, which is brilliant and shiny and new and well protected, actually isn't as significant as this old server over here, because if that's hacked, all of the data, the personal data that we rely upon or which would lead to a massive fine is exposed. So, you know, it's it's having that conversation and actually making sure that you understand enough um, of where those crown jewels of, of data are kept, and what platform they're on, and so when people are talking about updating platforms, updating server farms, et cetera, et cetera, or, or just sort of a new new operating system or whatever, you have the confidence to be able to say, all right, look, I don't necessarily understand all the tech side of this, but are we looking after this database that seems to be sitting on that kind of platform? Is that protected? Because unless that's protected, we are increasing the risk of this company or this organisation significantly.
0: No, and that's a really good point, actually. And people, you can't you can't do this, do this by numbers. You have to you have to think and apply yourself. Is, is the moral? Yeah, right. I think that brings us to time. Um, so James, thanks once again for a very insightful take on 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 governance on data protection as it presently is alive in the UK and in Europe. If
1: people want to get hold of you, what's the best way of getting hold of you? Probably through the Privacy Practice website. The email is my initials, jlg at leetongray.com.
0: Okay, and all the, all the contact details will be up on the show notes. Before I sign off, just to follow up on a couple of uh, points James raised, previous podcasts have covered both uh, insurance for cyber breach, which touches on some of those issues and also part one of a everything a DPO needs to know about uh, cybersecurity. So if you've missed those, uh, go back a few episodes and you can find them. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, We hope you found it uh, enjoyable and informative. If you've got any questions, comments, or if you'd like to appear, please drop us a line at info at thisisdpo.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening.